0: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I've mentioned a few times this week the new film Oppenheimer, which uh, may well be uh, next year's uh, Academy Award winner for Best Picture. And I've also stressed that it's a biopic. It's it's about Oppenheimer. While it deals with, of course, uh, Los Alamos and the making of the bomb and the dropping of the bomb, it still is a biopic. And so, friends of mine are disappointed that it didn't explore the the moral and spiritual dimensions uh, of Oppenheimer's, uh, well, Oppenheimer's rationale uh, for construction of the bomb. And uh, my guest, Dr. Cody Cooper, has actually given a good deal of thought to the moral quandary that Oppenheimer faced as his team approached completion of the bomb. And uh, I thought it would be good for us to uh, let Cody give us some instruction here uh, from the work he's done and reading he's done. He's associate professor of political science at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and is the author of The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding. You can find his essays at Word on Fire, The Public Discourse, First Things, in other outlets, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. D.R. Cody, K-O-D-Y Cooper. Cody, good to have you here. Thanks. Oh,
1: thanks for having me on, Alice. Uh, great pleasure.
0: I, I pre- much appreciated, by the way, the essays, that uh, word on fire. And tell us a little bit about what we know of Oppenheimer's moral and spiritual formation.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a good question. You know, he was he was born in 1904 in New York, and he was a second generation um, sort of Jewish immigrant. His father had come over from Germany, and they were trying to you know find a way to integrate assimilate in, into America. And they they found the Ethical Culture Society, which was a sort of secular progressive um, Jewish sort of group that really focused on social justice, progressive values, and. And he kind of had his his you know early education in that that framework and kind of set his trajectory toward having a kind of more progressive liberal outlook on the world
0: mm-hmm.
1: and not and not particularly orthodox or even theistic um you know grow, uh, uh, rearing
0: yeah and did he do we know that he spent any time um seeking uh, to understand the Jewish tradition?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, he he doesn't seem to I mean he may he may have that and there's evidence that we don't have, but as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like it was anything that particularly interested him. Yeah. He was very good with language. He had, he had mastered several lot of languages and he even he even taught himself Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And when a, a friend of his learned of this, who's a Jewish friend said, "Why not Hebrew and why not the Talmud?" Um, <laughs> it didn't seem to interest him, so.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's that's a very good point. Uh, so he's very much secular in his thinking, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, I would say that he he appreciated poetry and he appreciated he appreciated you know spiritual writings, um, of you know great writings like the Bhagavad Gita. He taught himself Italian in order to read Dante. So okay. he was he was a humanistic sort of liberal in the sense that he he read widely. Um, but I don't think that he he ever adopted any 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 lens of faith.
0: Yeah. How would how would he have understood the scientist's vocation? If you can put it that.
1: Yeah, way? I think I think that he saw he saw the scientist as seeking out truth, but he saw that as very narrow. That it was it was a, a material world that human beings could. Could engage with and learn about, but it was it, it was an order that was not created, not that, that didn't have sort of divinely imbued purposes, um, but which you know in the the quantum revolution, I think he was taken in by this idea of indeterminacy and and the idea uh, the, the new ideas of atomic physics, um, but he very much saw he seemed to see the world through a more materialistic lens.
0: A materialistic lens, but he embraced indeterminacy then. Yes. So he he didn't. I'm just curious how he might have thought. I mean, I I know it's maybe f- silly, but indeterminacy in physics does that have anything to do with free will in humans?
1: Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question, and in and there have been some philosophers um, who have who have argued that actually. The, the quant the insights into the quantum world could provide um, a scientific grounding for free will. Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't I don't think that he ever you know looked into that possibility. Mm-hmm. But I I mean I think that that's an interesting uh, argument and and, po- and very very well may be the case.
0: Sure. Um, you do mention the 1948 address to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences uh, by Pope Pius the twelfth. Yeah. Any indication that uh, Oppenheimer was familiar with that?
1: Yeah, I, I tried to find out um, if he if he had any interaction with, with any of the you know papal statements or the pontifical the pontifical academy itself. Um, but I, I couldn't find any evidence that he ever had.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I I don't I could I couldn't say for sure. But I it doesn't seem that if he did it. It, it really affected any of his thinking about mm. how to understand the scientist's vocation.
0: What would Pope Pius Twelfth had said to um, J. Robert Oppenheimer?
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of a, that's kind of a million dollar question. Right. Because <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating, you know, because they're contemporaries and, you know, they're, they are both, you know, in, in real senses, leaders and, and, and thoughtful people. And I think that it would have been a fascinating conversation have between them, I, I can say that I that he, a few years after the bomb was dropped, the Pope says this is the most terrible weapon that humans have ever created. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's, he's sounding, um, he, he's he's giving a, a, a clear moral uh, judgment um, that, you know, he made his conversation with Oppenheimer, it would have been fascinating to know how different it would have been, or, or if it would have been any different, um, you know, before while they're before they're creating the bomb, while they're creating the bomb, and then afterwards. Yeah. But I think that he and I think that he and the Pope probably would have had some some common ground in the post um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, sort of um, uh, trying to think through what what uh, nuclear weapons should look like in in terms of of their continued expanding creation. And Oppenheimer was very much someone who. He, wa- he wanted to advise restraint um, in the building of a nuclear arsenals.
0: Yeah, he is it true that he thought that the dropping of the bomb would end all war? That we now would have in our hands such a terrifying weapon that people would be uh, unwilling to, you know, go to war in the future.
1: Yeah, yes, he does seem to have at least during his time at Los Alamos, kind of, he, uh, sort of reasoned this way. Um, I think, you know, reality quickly uh, came back to bite him. Yeah. But he did think, he did seem to think, and he indeed offered it as a moral justification to his fellow scientists, all of that, or, or most of whom had, had been really thinking that the bomb was, was aimed at the Nazis.
0: That's they, right, yeah. They
1: were, they were racing to, you know, defeat... The Nazi nuclear program, and they didn't, and they didn't have a lot of information, and, it, and there was some information trickling in about, well, oh, it looks like maybe their program is behind, but they initially thought they were behind, and and then once once the, the Nazis surrender uh, in 1945, um, in in this late spring, um, the bomb actually hasn't been tested yet, and so you know there's this there is this moral perplexity that that Oppenheimer and his you know and his fellow scientists have. Well should we should we really go through with this you know and and it wasn't enough for Oppenheimer that it put in the war in japan um, he, he he did appreciate and was aware of the arguments about Japan and wanting to continue to fight um, he didn't have all the information about what that looked like on the ground, how likely surrender could have happened, it mm-hmm. blockade all that he didn't know a lot of that stuff, but he he appreciated that, but that wasn't enough for him, and it doesn't seem like it was enough for his fellow scientists who seemed like they wanted some further moral justification. This idea was that, well, we have a revolution in science. We've got to reveal this to the world. We can't hide it. And in the revealing of it, this terrible weapon, it will force this sort of rev, a revolution in politics where people will say, okay, we've got to have a, we basically have to have a world government, like in something like the United Nations, that will control nuclear weapons and therefore control war.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As I understand it, Oppenheimer insisted, though, that this didn't need to be a mere display. It actually had to kill. Uh, Yes. It ended up killing about 70 to 100,000 people at Hiroshima. Um, Yes. And so, so to end all war, he's willing to kill X number of people.
1: Yes. Yes. It wasn't, he wasn't, there were scientists who said, you know, let's let's do let's do a peaceful demonstration. Let's let's do on like a, a you know isolated yeah. uh, location or something like this. Now they only did have they only had a, a few bombs. They right. had one they tested. They had two more, and so they were saying, "Well, what if you know, what if it doesn't work?" Or, you know, so there there were arguments back and forth on this. But Oppenheimer says, "You know, no, we've he goes to the military and says that yeah, this will be the demonstration, and it will include targeting of, of Japanese civilians, and that's." That is uh, the cost that he seems to have been willing to pay.
0: Wow. Yeah. I. You wonder had he been a theist if he would have come to that conclusion.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder that very much, and I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there were there were other theists in the project, yeah. you know, and, and stuff, and, and it's, and I, I'm not enough of an expert of that social history to to have traced all of that, but. Yeah. Um, I do think it would have affected his thinking and and, and I think that's part of what the vo- the the, voca- the the vocation of the scientist is supposed to be is to be taking um higher ethi- taking ethical principles from a higher light um and, and be guided by that light. Mm-hmm. And I do think by natural law alone one could by unaided reason one could know the intrinsic dignity of all human beings. Don't yeah. get wrong and that's and that's the Catholic view. But at the same time that that those inherited principles are sustained and, and, and reinforced by faith. And, you know, I think the Oppenheimer found himself in a place where he, you know, he talks about later in his life um, when he, because uh, he, he does feel guilt. He feels the pangs of conscience after after the bombs are dropped. Yeah. And he kind of, he kind of imposes a penance on himself and, and works to try to limit, you know, it's sort of like trying to put the toothpaste back in the bottle in a way, but he's trying to at least limit how much damage it could possibly do. And he says, you know, um, it's against all of the all the moral principles we were we were raised to believe. Well, okay, yeah, it, or at least it could be that the, the spread of nuclear weapons and destruction. Well, yeah, but that's a pretty weak. It's not. It's, it's not just that. Oh, we happen to have these principles right. that we were taught. No, we need. It, it, I'm not sure that's gonna that's gonna convince or, or be enough to sustain the kind of dedication to a culture of life that we want. We need to have those vibrant institutions. We need to have, um, those, you know, the, those faith communities alive and well. And I'm not, I think that he just sort of the him. He just uh, assumed that was going to be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. His, uh, this self-imposed penance uh, that you referred to, did that, does that explain his passivity in front of the, uh, the hearing, the gray board, uh, after the war
1: yeah that's and that's an that's an interesting possibility and it's the film does seem to does seem to, to suggest that that he he sees himself uh he this you know perhaps is trying to assuage his guilt or he sees himself as a kind of martyr or maybe it's a kind of his atonement that um you know this this atomic energy commission review of his of his security clearance which was sort of behind the scenes, sort of scurrilous, um, you know, yeah. didn't, didn't follow principles of due process, right. didn't allow him to see the evidence, didn't allow him to, to his lawyers to see the evidence, was, you know, it, it, but it wasn't an actual what? trial. It, it was kind of a, yeah, go ahead, sorry. We've.
0: I'm sorry, we're just running out of time. Yeah. Got about 35 seconds. Uh yeah. his fascination with the Bhagavad Gita and that now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Uh, yeah. What's he mean?
1: Well, I think that he sees a glimpse of himself. I think that he sees um, what, what the, the vocation of the scientist cut off from God must ultimately um, make an idol of science. Yeah. And, and in making an idol of science, he takes on a kind of, a kind of character of a, of a god and then, and, 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 as a sort of symbol of what the modern scientist would become. Yeah. And indeed, he's the most terrible god.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Cody. We'll talk again. I appreciate it.